Now John Brown or Captain John Brown or old John Brown, depending on which side of the fence you stood on in, in Bleeding Kansas, uh, has really been exploded into a mythological figure in American history, uh, which first began shortly after his execution after a failed attack on Harper's Ferry. But usually John Brown's story uh, begins in Bleeding Kansas, uh, but it should not. Uh, it's important to establish kind of the historical uh, life of the man leading up to these events, and it clarifies several. Uh, it is very common uh, to see John Brown listed as a kind of a violent extremist abolitionist. Uh, he's actually uh, attempted to be defined as a domestic terrorist uh, on government websites today, uh, which is a disgusting uh, attempt on their behalf. But his actual, uh, his real story begins uh, almost 30 years before Bleeding Kansas. Uh, he was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, uh, beginning uh, at least as early as 1825. And of course, the Underground Railroad was a series of safe houses uh, constructed uh, usually along border states uh, to help uh, slaves escape the southern plantations and e get either into the northern states or sometimes as far as Canada. Although, depending on the time period, uh, Retreating to Canada was not always a boon. Uh, they also practiced uh, slavery uh, earlier in their in their lives. So he liquidated all of his property in order to finance a move to New Richmond, Virginia, because he felt that he could establish a safe house there for fugitive slaves that would be of um, better use to the Underground Railroad. And so that's specifically what he did. Um, he also assisted the Underground Railroad uh, when he lived in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, one of the more interesting quotes of his uh, is that he uh, often bragged about uh, his seven sons, the seven sons of John Brown. Uh, he evinced a good deal of pride in stating that he had seven sons to help him in the cause. And that cause uh, was anything and everything opposed to slavery and ultimately would turn uh, into uh, a kind of declaration of war of pro-slavery ruffians in bleeding Kansas. Uh, he was an extraordinarily devout uh, man of faith. Uh, in 1846, actually, he attended uh, a free abolitionist church uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts, and there he met and uh, talked to Frederick Douglass, of course, one of the most famous abolitionists in the 20th century, and I would much happily argue uh, a far superior example of a civil rights man at the time than uh, those who emerged later in the 60s, which eventually we'll get on that subject as well. <clears throat> So Douglas spends uh, spends a night with uh, with John Brown, and he wrote of this encounter later on because they spoke well into the night about John Brown's uh, culminating plans to combat slavery. And Douglas wrote, and I quote: "His plan, as it, as it then lay in his mind, had much to commend it. It did not, as some suppose, contemplate a general rising among the slaves and a general slaughter of the slave masters." 
An insurrection, he thought, would only defeat the object, but his plan did contemplate the creating of an armed force which should act in the very heart of the South. He was not averse to the shedding of blood, and thought the practice of carrying arms would be a good one for the colored people to adopt, as it would give them a sense of their manhood. No people, he said, could have self-respect or be respected who would not fight for their freedom. Now, after meeting with John Brown, Douglas then wrote that he discovered that he himself, quote-unquote, became all the same, less hopeful for peaceful abolition. My utterances became more and more tinged by the color of this man's strong impressions. Now, what's interesting about this here is, is Douglas actually wrote uh, of his escape from his own slave master and his, his ability to physically combat his slave master and defeat him in a contest of strength. And if that was a transformational moment for him, that, that it was like breaking through a wall where all of the, the social conditioning of intergenerational slavery was shattered as soon as he successfully raised his hand against the man who had beat him. So John Brown, who naturally had read this book, wanted to create that same circumstance for other slaves because it was well understood at the time that they were not simply combating a social institution in slavery. And though they lacked the words for it yet, they were combating intergenerational social conditioning. Uh, reinforcement. Uh, slavishness is a term that arose uh, for very good reason. Uh, it explains the, uh, the social conditioning, the uh, effects of slavery and existing as a slave, and the depressing features uh, that come along with that. So the shortest way to destroy uh, that barrier uh, would be to arm these fugitive slaves, not for the purpose of violence, but for placing them on a level of equality with those, uh, just like we already understand from natural rights theory, your right to self-defense and my right to self-defense do not conflict. But that also helps establish an equality among people. Well, if one person has a gun and the other person does not, there is no equality of force and self-defense there. So, on a theoretical level, uh, John Brown is uh, completely accurate in this. Now, in uh, 1848, so we're just skipping forward a couple years, uh, John Brown, he bought land and built a home in a name that I thought was actually a joke for most of my childhood, uh, built a home in Timbuktu, uh, which was a, it was a region where uh, free blacks were given land to farm. Of course, they were donated by an abolitionist, uh, a very wealthy man uh, named Garrett Smith, uh, who sold the land at an amazing $1 an acre but he would only sell it to free blacks. Now, he did make an exception uh, for John Brown because of his reputation. And so John Brown uh, once again liquidated all of his uh, property and possessions and relocated Timbuktu so that he could help teach and educate uh, these uh, freed blacks or freedmen uh, in farming. Uh, once again, as the founders recognized and as the series of, of, uh, of laws in the founding era recognized, uh, education and training, vocational skills, were essential to not just existing in a free society, but by being able to fully embrace the human dignity of existing as an independent individual. 
simply releasing slaves did not put them on that on that footing. Many uh, resorted to criminality. Others uh, actually ended up selling themselves back into slavery due to no inherent fault of them uh, for being black or African. Even the founders recognized this, but as a consequence of the slave institution. Now, in 1851, uh, John Brown formed uh, the League of Gileadites. Uh, it was an abolitionist group of uh, free blacks, and they were uh, essentially a, a fugitive slave self-defense group. Uh, and naturally, uh, this popped up uh, as a result of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which will also be addressed in a separate episode. Uh, this, this act radically transformed... Uh, the whole understanding of fugitive slaves, the requirements of states, and the requirements of their citizens. It was a gross abuse of constitutional authority, uh, and it was uh, really the first example of just overt authority overreach uh, by the federal Congress, uh, specifically because it granted judicial authority on people uh, who were not uh, properly uh, placed in those positions through constitutional measures and procedures. Uh, and it also attempted to force uh, states, and not just states, but their citizens, uh, to enforce federal law. Which there are some very serious and uh, legitimate applications to that and its requirements uh, and on the uh, many of the COVID policies and mandates, which were never even laws, uh, that sought to require states and individuals to uh, perform very a various acts for the uh, larger government or even state governments uh, to ensure that people were following uh, these not laws, but just policies or mandates that were put forward. And so we can see how that's dangerous. Now, a lot of the information uh, that I'm going to draw upon uh, for for the battles and the conflicts and and the court hearings and what lot, whatnot for uh, John Brown are actually derived from a congressional report. Uh, it was compiled by, by a man named Robert D. Witt, uh, and it is titled The Life, Trial, and Execution of Captain John Brown, known as Old Brown of Osawatomi, with a full account of the attempted insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Very long title, as these things tend to have. Uh, but the point being that <clears throat> I noticed in my research uh, now over a year ago, uh, in writing volume two, that there was a lot of conjecture, there were a lot of uh, kind of revisionist tellings of John Brown. And so I, as good historians should do, uh, attempted to get to source material as close and as official as possible at the time. So John Brown really rose to legend status uh, in Bleeding Kansas. He did not go to Bleeding Kansas with the intent of engaging in warfare initially. Uh, that was inspired uh, by his sons. Uh, they moved into the Kansas Territory like many did, seeking economic opportunity. New territory, new land, uh, new markets. Uh, they wrote back uh, to their father and were just describing to him some of the circumstances, some of the acts of terrorism going on. And, of course, John Brown, being a, a very... Uh, purposeful man of action, uh, decided to relocate himself to the Nebraska Territory and made several stops along the way, 
gathering funding and gathering arms. Now, it's almost as soon as entering the territory, John Brown's family became persecuted uh, and targeted for some reason, probably due to his, his stature, uh, by Democrat ruffians. They threatened him. They threatened his family. They insulted their women, uh, their, you know, their, their nieces and their wives and their daughters. Uh, they ultimately uh, murdered two of his sons and drove another one to insanity uh, through torture, uh, fired shots at his house at the night. There was a series of events that occurred here. Now, his real story in Bleeding Kansas starts with the Potawatomi Massacre. And there are several names <laughs> that we're going to be going over today that are a little unusual. Uh, but uh, one of them, of course, being the Potawatomi Massacre. And prior to this massacre, which I don't think is the correct way to describe it, it's more like the Potawatomi uh, self-defense uh, event, but he was, uh, to coin a phrase from the report, uh, John Brown was, quote-unquote, made the object of the most active persecutions of the Missourians, which would be the border ruffians, and all the bitterness and stern determination of his nature were stirred up from their very depths in retaliation. So let's, we're going to break kind of the um, a series of events and just cover a couple that occurred here. So Frederick, which is one of his sons, was assaulted by a group of uh, ruffians and was brutally murdered. Uh, one of his other sons, named also named John, was illegally detained by ruffians under the... Uh, assumption or well, presumption of him being a political prisoner. He was loaded down with chains and then he was driven by foot and forced to march 20 miles per day to get to Tecumseh. Uh, it traumatized him so severely uh, that he, he was essentially enfeebled, enfeebled by it. Uh, his mind no longer functioned afterwards. Now, one of the more interesting elements, and this was something I found only in the Congressional Report, was that border ruffians had held a public meeting and had formally declared a bounty placed on the head of John Brown and his family. This same committee uh, notified Brown and other free state men all along uh, Potawatomi Creek, which is the designation for where they lived, that if they did not leave the territory in three days that they would hang all of them. So, quote uh, from the source here, a committee of five called on him, John Brown, on one occasion and informed him that he must leave the territory in three days or die, that they would come to his house with a sufficient force at the end of that time, and if they found him still there, they would hang him. The old man thanked them for the notice, saying very coolly, you will not find me here then, gentlemen. Before the next sun rose, the five members of that committee were in the other world. Now, what happened after these border ruffians left is that night, John Brown got some of his sons and other abolitionists together and said, well, they've promised that they're going to kill us. Uh, let's take them out. Uh, there was no structured, really, law in this region at the time, uh, and so threats of death had to be met with uh uh, the like uh, action. Now, the reason I argue that the events that occurred shortly thereafter were not a massacre uh, 
He did, well, <laughs> accounts vary, but he, his posse, let's say, his group did kill the five men who had threatened to murder all of them. Uh, and these same five men were uh, instrumental in violence and attacks. Uh, it's very likely that at least one of them had been involved in uh, the murdering of, of a uh, free stater uh, just in the weeks prior. But he didn't simply go through ruffian territory shooting and slaughtering to his will. He killed no women and no children. And he only killed those five men who had threatened him and everyone else and already conducted acts of violence. He spared the 16-year-old son of one of these men. At a different house, uh, there were a total of six men inside, but only one had belonged to the ruffian group. And so that was the only one that they killed. And there was another instance where they interrogated two men, concluded that they were not part of the violent ruffian group, and just simply let them go. So it was very far from kind of this recounting of uh, senseless violence where he just ran through, and if, if he were anything other than him, he just slaughtered a massacre. It was not a massacre, it was precision. Uh, and it was precision uh, predicated largely uh, the kind of frontier justice act of self-defense. Well, as you might imagine, uh, this uh, incurred a reaction. Uh, it was a battle of blackjack was the next encounter, and that was largely in response uh, to the uh, Potawatomi massacre. Now, Henry Clay was a very prominent Democrat politician from Missouri, and he entered into the uh, Kansas-Nebraska uh, territory boasting about uh, how he was going to find Old Brown and capture him or kill him or whatnot. Uh, so he had found two of Brown's sons and abducted them, uh, presumably as a means of trying to lure John Brown out as if he ever was hidden. Uh, so uh, John Brown obviously uh, answered his call very happily. Uh, he came to the field with only 10 men, so they were outnumbered 3 to 1. Uh, in just a few moments of... Uh, gunfire, however, uh, Clay surrendered, and he was wholly in Brown's power, along with the uh, 22 remaining ruffians who had not been shot dead. Now, what happens next is very uh, illustrative to the circumstances here. So John Brown actually attempted to deliver Clay and his men to a federal marshal, and the federal marshal not only rejected this, but threatened to arrest John Brown, and John Brown very nearly had to shoot and kill this marshal. So that, that highlights really the deep political involvement uh, in the territory at the time uh, where uh, Democrat operatives functioned in the highest levels and rendered any hope, really, of good government uh, you know, to protect the right of citizens, namely their lives uh, and their homes, uh, was, it was not available. Uh, could not be counted upon. Uh, so you basically have a, an anarchy in, in the territory at the time. Now, the next fight uh, was uh, Osawatomi. Now, this was a rough one for Brown. Uh, and he, again, accounts vary anywhere from 250 to 400 uh, border ruffians uh, on the outskirts of Osawatomi uh, executed uh, one of John Brown's sons. Uh, obviously, Brown and others... Uh, then attacked, outnumbered 7 to 1, uh, but they were forced to retreat eventually, uh, although they did kill and wound many of the ruffians. 
So as a consequence of this defeat, however, the ruffians burned the entire town to the ground, and this was one of the major hubs, one of the major homes for the Free Staters. Now this changed things for John Brown, not only because he had suffered a casualty in his family, uh, but because of the, uh, the level of force that had been demonstrated. So after witnessing uh, the destruction and the arson, uh, John Brown noted, I have only a short time to live, only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause. There will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done for. I will give them something else to do than extend slave territory. I will carry this war into Africa. Now, he was uh, involved in innumerable smaller conflicts that have largely escaped uh, the historical record just due to the kind of their insignificance to some of these larger ones. Uh, the final episode that's detailed in that congressional report is called the Battle of Spurs. Now, this was a great one, really. Uh, John Brown was uh, escorting a group of fugitive slaves through the territory. He had helped them escape, naturally. And they were overtaken uh, by the, some slave owners and the local sheriff and a posse of men. As soon as the sheriff showed up, uh, Brown and his men formed firing lines and defensive positions. And apparently this kind of spooked the, uh, the ruffian posse, who presumably... Uh, had just been used to slaughtering defenseless, helpless people. Uh, it did not take long, uh, and uh, Brown captured the entire group. Uh, he forced them to dismount from their horses and gave their horses to the fugitive slaves. And of course, these uh, this was met with righteous indignation, uh, so these ruffians are swearing. And uh, John Brown warned them once, he said, I do not allow men under my care to be profane, which is quite true. He did also not allow profanity at his camps, uh, and he did not allow uh, everyone's force to undergo uh, hy hygienic uh, procedures and whatnot. Well, these these tough guys who just got routed by a, a much smaller number decided to uh, continue their defiance and swear further. And so John Brown pulled his revolver and pressed the barrel to the forehead of one of the men and said, kneel, which he did, and then he just said, pray. And for the next five days, uh, these men were imprisoned as uh, prisoners of war, and they were forced to pray, uh, for seem, uh, presumably uh, as an act of uh, penance for swearing uh, whenever they were informed uh, and told not to. Now, uh, naturally, the consequence is that these slaves were freed. Now, in his uh, autobiography, Douglas uh, describes uh, John Brown uh, with kind of equal parts, uh, almost a fear, but also a deep respect and reverence. Uh, he was uh, a very uh, charismatic figure, and he was uh, had a very, very powerful presence. So Douglas writes, It would be a grateful task to tell of his exploits in the border struggle, how he met persecution with persecution, war with war, strategy with strategy, assassination and house burning with with signal and terrible retaliation till even the bloodthirsty propagandists of slavery were compelled to cry for quarter the horrors wrought by his iron hand cannot be contemplated without a shudder but it is this shudder which one feels at the execution of a murderer 
The amputation of a limb is a severe trial to feeling, but necessity is a full justification of it to reason. To call out a murderer at midnight, and without note or warning, judge or jury, run him through with a sword, was a terrible remedy for a terrible milady. So John Brown, uh, as Douglas describes him, was the violent answer to violence. Um, he did was not a domestic or political terrorist. Uh, in large part, all of his acts were retaliatory or uh, clearly outlined earlier in the Potawatomi so-called massacre. Uh, it was self-defense on a frontier that uh, government had broken down, law and order had broken down. Uh, now, he his uh, story is not yet over. Uh, it extends into a failed assault on Harper's Ferry, uh, which really clarifies a lot uh, about his ideology and his purposes and the man himself. And so we will explore just a little more time on John Brown uh, coming up. <laughs>